why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea. We're gonna be in Hosea chapter four. We're gonna start, we're gonna go through Hosea four to six, highlighting some verses there. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, throw your hand up. We got ushers who would love to get a Bible into your hand so you can follow along. Got a lot of verses to cover this morning. You're gonna want a copy of God's word. You wanna have that open in front of you, whether on your phone, your iPad, a paper Bible, however you got, but grab one of these if you don't have one. And if you don't own one, take one of these home as our gift to you. Go to Hosea chapter four. It's a little minor prophet. Get past the big prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all them. And then Hosea is the first of the smaller prophetic books. Go ahead and get to Hosea four. As you're turning there, if, if you're a boss or, or maybe you're a, a teacher or maybe you're a parent and, and you've got to tell people to do something, you're, you're asking them, hey, I need this accomplished. How do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person you're talking to is actually listening to you? Like, like if you're a parent and, and you're talking to your kids and, and, and you've gotten their attention and, and you're sharing with them and, and you're grabbing them and saying, hey, hey kids, I'm going out for a little bit. When I come back, I want the kitchen cleaned up, right? And you say it and you know you're speaking English, right? Because you can hear it coming out in English, right? And you know they're understanding it because they're nodding their heads, right? Yes, dad, okay, dad. How do you know that they've actually listened. I mean, you, you could get them to repeat it back. Hey, tell me what you're doing while I'm gone. We're, clean, we're gonna clean the kitchen, dad. Okay, good. You, you could get them to explain how you're gonna do it. Well, my sister's gonna do the dishwasher. I'm gonna do the count. Like you do that, right? But how do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they actually heard what you said? They were listening to what you said. Here's how you know. When you come back from being out and you step into the house and the, and the kitchen is the same as it looked like when you left, maybe even worse, right? And your kids are kind of lounging around on the couch, on the computer, doing stuff, just sort of laying around. You walk into that, all right? This is hypothetical, not my kids, okay? Because I've read all of Paul Tripp's books. I shepherd their hearts well, okay? My kids are perfect. When I come home, kitchen clean, they're reading and highlighting their Bibles because they're pastor's kids, right? <clears throat> So just hypothetically say three daughters don't clean the kitchen, right? And when you come home and it's like that, you, what do you know? You know, wait a minute, wait a minute. You actually weren't listening. You know that, that people are listening. You know that there's real true listening when there is what? When there's change, when there's action that comes out of it. In our walk with God, it's the same thing, that, that we have a heart level listening. We're hearing God's voice when there's action. The biblical word for, for this action, it, it's repentance, this change when God calls us to something and we, we go in a different direction. It's this change of mind. This is what repentance is. It's a change of mind so profound that it goes down to heart level. There's a heart change and that heart change is so profound, it, it's shown in life change. The whole person now moving in a different direction. Like the Puritan Thomas Watson, he said it this way. He said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. A heart change that leads to action, that leads to a, a life change. If you're a, a Christ follower, that happened the moment you gave your life to Christ. When you turned away from, I'm going my way, and you turned from that and said, no, I want to pursue Jesus, that's Repentance. In that moment, in that moment, you were made holy. The theological word for that word, being made holy, it's you were justified. It's justification. 
where God says, you now have the righteousness of Christ on you. It's an amazing truth to think about what our justification actually means. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. I don't know if I've done this before. I know I've done it with our men's group. If I've done it on a Sunday morning, have you seen it before? Just nod and go along with it like you've never seen it, right? It'll make me feel good. Let, let, me, let me illustrate what this justification actually looks like. And so, here, let, let, come on up, Spence. Come on up here. Yes, there you go, Spencer. Yeah, come on up. You are, well, before you die, you are, okay, Jeff, you get to represent Jesus. All right, not that awesome? Right? In the front row, I'm going to treat you well, okay? So come on over here, come over here. You are Jesus, okay? And you stand right here, okay? Dan, why don't you come on up? You get to be Hitler, okay? Sorry. <laughs> Not everybody gets the good roles, okay? Okay, so Dan is Hitler. So, so how far away would Christ's righteousness from, from the life of Hitler. Like you, we can't make the stage wide enough, right? So, so this is where Hitler's so far away from the righteousness of Christ, right? Okay, Mike, why don't you come on up? Okay, so stand back a bit, Hitler. Okay. So Mike, you get to represent the Apostle Paul. I think of the Apostle Paul, just, I mean, next to Christ, probably the, the person closest to God, right? That just walked in righteousness, walked in obedience with the world's greatest missionary of all times as he gave up everything to follow Christ. Where's Paul in relation to the holiness of Christ? Here he is over here. When you think about your life in, in relation to the holiness and righteousness of God, the, the, the difference between you and Christ is so great that the difference between you and Hitler is, is, is almost negligible. You can't even see it. This is what it is to compare ourselves to the holiness of Christ. Now, now listen, when you turn and give your life to Christ, when you, when, you, when you put your life under him, when you repent, you are justified. So now, come on over here, it's as though you were over here. This is how God sees you in Christ. Right? He looks at you and sees Christ's righteousness. This is what it is. And now, now, eventually, there'll be glorification. So justification is how you are. You're standing in heaven right now. Glorification is when you actually finally get to heaven. Either Christ returns or you go to him and you are glorified. This is, this is the truth now in reality as you're in heaven. But until then, we live our lives here in the process of what we call sanctification. Sanctification is us turning and facing Christ and, and living our lives in a way that we are being made more and more day by day into the image of Christ. You guys can have a seat. Thanks for your help. Thanks for your help, guys. Sorry, Dan, I'll make it up to you. So, so we need to understand what, what sanctification is compared to what justification is. Justification is we are declared righteous. That is who we are. That's our standing before God. Sanctification is being made more and more like Christ. And it happens, this journey here happens every day, day by day, as we turn and worship Christ and turn away from the other things we worship. This happens day by day when we recognize, listen, the gap that there is. When we say, man, here am I. I deserve to be over here as far away from the holiness of God as possible. And we see that gap and we remember that in Christ we've been declared righteous and it stirs in our hearts, hearts of worship. And we grow in sanctification, pursuing Christ more, turning to Jesus. 
And so this, this idea of repentance, of, of growing in repentance, it's a normal way of life for a Christ follower. It's what we do every day. Martin Luther, when he nailed his famous theses to the Wittenberg door, the very first part of his thesis statement was this, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Not just how you start your journey with Christ, but listen, every day, the ongoing way of a Christian life is a life turning and pursuing and worshiping Christ. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says it this way. He says, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. We don't lose heart, why? Because our inner self is being renewed, he says, day by day. Paul says, I'm hugely encouraged. My, I don't lose hope. My heart is full in the midst of struggles and hurts and pains and sin and difficulties. God's word said, no, there's hope. And Paul says this hope is renewed day by day. So it's not a, it's not a zap moment where we all of a sudden hit the, the perfection button and there we are. It's day by day living like Jesus. A lifelong process. Some days, listen, sometimes it's fast and God does a miraculous work that's so quick. Sometimes it's slow. Most often it's slow. Be encouraged, as Paul says, don't lose heart. Day by day you're being renewed, but it's, it's most often slow. When the Bible talks about our growth and sanctification, it uses imagery like, like fruit and trees and babies and all those things grow slowly. I don't know what you're like this spring, but it's been so stinking cold. Like I'm coming up going, right, still no leaves in the trees, Right? I'm going to my garden and I'm like, what's going on here? It, but it's a slow process. I, I can get down and go, come on, grow, right? But it's not, gonna, it's not like overnight they're gonna appear. Sanctification is this process. We need to be in this process of repentance day by day. Every day, listen, you leak, you fade, you run out. So day by day, we need a renewing, a returning, a repenting. You can't survive on just physically on just eating one meal on Sunday and hoping that gets you through a week. You, you can't be okay if you're on daily medication to say, well, the meds I took the other day, that'll do me for today. No, you need that ongoing day by day. And so as we dig into Hosea, here's what my heart is for us this morning, that, that we would see that, that for our heart to be encouraged, to be full, is to seek out repentance and renewing day by day. Now, what's that look like? Well, the whole message of Hosea, as we've been tracking through in this series, is God really asking the question, hey, are you listening? Are you really hearing this? And, and to shake us up, to make sure we're really listening, rather than just grabbing us by the shoulders or, or turning our face to him, God, God uses Hosea's life as a way to shake us up to make sure we're listening. And he says, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman named Gomer. And Gomer's not just gonna be unfaithful to you once or twice, She's going to pursue prostitution. She's going to continually leave you to pursue other men. And, and, and that shocking illustration of Hosea's life, it's meant to shake us up. We, we should feel the shock of, of God's relentless pursuit of grace over us. But it's also shocking in this way. It, it's to warn us, to shake us up out of our, our half-hearted repentance. It's, it's to put the image in our minds so that we, when we sin, we, we don't just come to God, hey, yeah, God, you know what? Sorry about my whoring. We're cool though, right? It's to shake us up. 
It's, it's to use these hard words. It's to use this, this illustration, this image. Why? So that we would have a response of relentless pursuit of repentance because of God's relentless pursuit of grace, a day-by-day renewing. So let's look at chapters four and five quickly. And our first point this morning is this. We want to look at what, what does a life look like without repentance? A life without repentance. And God starts right away in chapter four and he says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. He's getting their attention. Hey, listen, listen, kids. I've got something I want to say to you. Chapter five, look, it starts the same way. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. He's trying to get their attention. Verse one of chapter four goes on. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, the word controversy, the NIV translates it a charge. The NASB translates it as the Lord has a case against you. The word controversy, it gives a, a legal idea, like, like there's a courtroom happening. And God's saying, hey, come into the courtroom, and I'm bringing your heart up to be laid out for the evidence to speak for where your heart is at. So God's like, here, let's lay your heart out for the courtroom to see. Turn all the lights on. Let's open up all the hidden places. Here you are on display. And it doesn't look good. The verse goes on. It says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. He says, there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. He says, you say you love me, but your actions show different. You say you're listening, but I I don't see the change. I mean, look look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter four. He says, here's where I don't don't see faithfulness. He goes, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they've left God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on hills under oak, poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I mean, God's not pulling punches here. This is supposed to be hard for us to hear. He says, you're, you're, you're talking to pieces of wood. You're going horizontal for your vertical needs. You're going after all these other gods. You're hoping you can get something from them. And while you're pursuing them, and he uses a strong language, while you're going after them, you're turning to me saying, but I love you. He says, you're seeking power and control and hope and identity in these other things. You're seeking comfort and approval and you're you're seeking that, God says, far more than you seek me, that you love me, than you worship me. There's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. He says also, there's no knowledge. I mean, God's called us his bride. And in that, there's the imagery of God knows us intimately But what he's saying is, there's no relationship here. You don't know me, he says. Look at verse six of chapter four. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of what? For lack of knowledge. Because they don't know me. There's no time in the word and, and we want to be changed. We want to grow. We want to walk in sanctification. Yet we never pick up our Bibles. You know, the big church in Chicago, Willow Creek, it was years ago, they were looking at their, their people in their church. Thousands of people go there, but they're saying, man, people actually aren't growing in their faith. Yeah, we're winning a lot of people to Jesus and they're coming to hear the gospel, but there's not a lot of change going on in their life. So they started to d- dig deeper. 
doing interviews and research and, 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 and just sort of seeing, hey, what's actually going on in our church, putting out surveys. And here's what they came back with. They said the number one difference, number one, number two, three, weren't even close. The number one difference between those who were walking with the Lord and growing in their faith and seeing sin being dealt with, those who were growing in Christ versus those who weren't, those who were falling away, those who weren't finding joy and peace and all that. The difference, the one main difference, daily time in the word. That's it. So so simple. The Bible's been given to, to you and me. The Bible's been given to us so, by God to radically transform our hearts, to, to radically rearrange our lives. We gotta be in it. The Bible's like this mirror that we hold up and we read it and, and we say, wow, look what God says, man. I need to do something here. I need to repent, to change, to, to act, to worship. The Bible shows us the glory of God so that when we're tempted with some other trinket and and piece of wood or a staff, when we're looking at those things, we're like, man, that doesn't compare to the glory of God that I've seen in his word. I know him. The Bible's there to pull us out of our our little narrow confine of of our little self-defined world, and it sets us free, free to see the glory of God, free to, to live for others. But we need to place ourselves in front of the mirror of God's word every day for this change to happen. Instead, we run to other mirrors all the time, right? And and those other mirrors we look into, they they don't show us the real us. They're they're like those old carnival mirrors. Remember those kind of wobbly mirrors and it's not really what we look like with super long legs, super short legs, right? And you look in those mirrors and we we go to these, these carnival mirrors of culture, carnival mirrors of, well, I just wanna look deep in my own heart and see what I think about me. We look to family values. We look to the opinions of friends. But listen, it's only when we allow the authority of God's word to speak over us, not us speaking over it, but we just humbly lay ourselves before the word and we say, God, reveal my heart. And we read it and we see, man, this is a glorious God. And we see, man, this is my heart. Because what happens when we lose our love for God, when we lose our faithfulness for God, when we lose our knowledge of God, we no longer live under the word. Look at how verse two goes on in chapter four. So because of this, there's swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. More sin leads to more sin, he's saying. It's not good. The rest of chapter four and five lay out, this is the heart of people who are not walking in repentance. Like verse four, God speaks to actually the, the supposed spiritual leaders of the day. It says verse four, let no one contend and let no one accuse for with you is my contention, O priest. It's, it's, it's the leaders that he's, he's upset with as well. They're, they're no longer preaching the word. They're no longer leading the people in righteousness. Like look at verse seven and eight. Talking about these priests, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and are greedy for their iniquity. For the rest of chapter four and five, you you see God lay out in graphic detail. Here is the heart of my people. And and it's good for us to read this. It's, It's good for the book of Hosea to be part of our reading. Why? Because our hearts love to hear about forgiveness, but we cringe when we hear repentance. We're cool with saying, hey, I'm sorry. 
but, but we don't like to actually change what we've been doing. We love to be encouraged, but we hate it when, when the Spirit or, or in God's grace, he sends somebody else, begins to press in on our heart saying, hey, you need to look at something in your life. It's why it's good for us to study a book like Hosea. Because we learn as we read this, what do we take from this? Well, we take this, that, that time out of the word is dangerous. We begin to create our own gods. We begin to no longer see the glory of God. We begin to no longer see our own hearts. We begin to excuse sin when we spend time out of the word. Getting into Hosea is good because we begin to see, listen, listen, as leaders, you're held responsible. Hosea makes it pretty clear that, that if you're in a position of spiritual leadership, you're accountable for the spiritual care that either creates or doesn't create a spiritual culture with those who you lead. So pastors, elders, deacons, small group leaders, teachers, harvest kids, workers, youth, volunteers, parents, we have a responsibility and, and, and we can't just throw our hands up and say, oh, yeah, but have you seen them? Look at the way they act. I can't do anything here. We're called to be faithful as leaders. We're called to be faithful as parents. Dads and fathers, the Bible calls you specifically. And I know this doesn't fly well in our culture, but the Bible calls husbands and fathers to lead out in their families. How do you lead? You lead out by laying down your life for the needs of your family. You serve, you guide, you love, you protect. And it says Ephraim, another word for Israel, Ephraim has joined to idols, leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. God's confronting them saying, you've given yourself in worship to these things, so this is where you're headed. You're headed towards this destruction. Now, now what happens typically when we're confronted with that kind of sin? I mean, right away in Genesis, we see how Adam and Eve responded. It's how the people here in Hosea are responding. It's how we typically respond today. Adam and Eve didn't trust the Lord. They're like, we're not gonna pursue God. We wanna go our own way because I think God's holding out on us and he, he gave us this command, don't eat of the fruit of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, but I think it's because he's, he's holding something back. We don't trust him, so we're gonna go after this on our own and things go horrible as they look for hope and fulfillment outside of God's plans. And then God shows up. And God says, hey, Adam and Eve, where are you? And God's saying in Genesis, what he's saying here in Hosea, hey, hear me, I'm here. And then what's Adam do when he's confronted with his sinful choices? What does Israel do in Hosea? What do we typically do when confronted? I mean, what do I do? I mean, we hide and avoid. Adam and Eve, right away, they, they're hiding in some bushes. They grab a couple of fig leaves to try to cover up their shame. And yet God says, I'm here. We hide, we avoid, we blame. Adam right away, God's like, hey, Adam, what did you do? And Adam's first line, crazy, it's this wife you gave me, God. He blames Eve and God in one sentence. I mean, why, why, is he, why, why are you making these choices? Well, have you seen my church? 
You should meet my spouse. It's, it's my job. It's, it's, it's the stress I've got. It's the illness I battle. It's the way my parents raised me. And, and we look for any way around saying these words, it's me. I chose this sin. We blame. Or, or we compare, right? Do you ever catch yourself comparing? We, 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 we get pointed something out in our life and we start to criticize or point out how bad everybody else is. Well, I'm not as bad as they are. I think it's why websites and shows like TMZ and tabloid magazines, I think it's why we love them. We want to see train wrecks. Look at that life. That rich person is a total gong show. I feel better, right? Let's bring it down to more reality when we're confronted. What do we normally do? Yeah, but, yeah, but look at, look at what I do. When Libby, when my wife calls me out, and recently it's been, hey, where are you? I mean, you're so distracted. You're so distant right now with, with church stuff going on. My first response should be, thank you for revealing my heart. Let me turn my heart away from the horizontal back to the Lord. What is my first response? It's usually defend. It's either defend or, or compare. Yeah, but I'm a pretty good father. Yeah, but I do some good things, Right? And what do we do? Our heart's confronted. We're like, well, let me bring some other witnesses to the stand and they'll tell you how awesome I am in everything else. And we're confronted. We point out, well, look how generous I am. Look how many people I help. Look how nice I was the other day. Look, look where I serve and we compare. Or we downplay it. Sin is confronted and Maybe this is going on in Gomer's life where Gomer, it says that she continued to come back. When, when, when the good things ran out, when money was tight, she would go back to Hosea. She would leave the prostitution and come back to her husband. And maybe coming back, she's thinking, hey, hey, he'll take me back no matter what. He loves me. And we downplay God's holiness. Or maybe you catch yourself doing this when sin is weighing on you, you deaden yourself to it. You medicate it, you go shopping, you cruise the internet, you watch more TV, you use substances, you work more, it, you're, you're doing pleasurable things to say, get the pain of this guilt and this sin away from me. Here's the other thing we do. Rather than just not repent, and, and this one I think is the most dangerous, it's our, our second point this morning. We repent, but not true repentance. And we live a life of false repentance. Look at chapter five, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, and Ephraim, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. And God says this, he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. They, they have this issue like, yeah, we've done wrong. And what do they do? They go off somewhere else. They don't take it to the Lord. It's this, this false repentance moved in the wrong direction. It's, it's not about turning to God. It's, it's what the Bible would call worldly sorrow. It's what Tim Keller, the pastor and author, he calls religious repentance. Because in religion, our only hope in religion is that I can live a life good enough that God will bless me. And so then when I sin, it's a huge threat to God pouring out blessing on me. And so what do I do then? I gotta hide my sin. Religious people are the best people at looking good. Dressing nice, smiling nice, acting nice. Why? Because if they don't, they'll, they'll lose this moral high ground that says, but if I live this way, I have God's approval. Listen, the gospel says this, 
The gospel says my acceptance is based on Christ alone. I stand over here on this side of the stage next to Hitler. My righteousness declared by God to me is only because of Jesus. My hope is in Christ's righteousness, not in my righteousness. So that sin then, when I, when I can rest in that, it's not as traumatic then for me to admit weaknesses, to be able to stand up and say, here's my sin. So religious repentance, there's a reluctance to it. And, and when you eventually do say, okay, here it is, when you do turn, it's not for gospel reasons. It's not for God-glorifying reasons. It's not for worshiping him kind of reasons. It's going through the motions. It's religious, but it's not true. It's like the people here in Hosea 4 and 5. They're, they're going up to the mountain to sacrifice, but God's not there. They're not actually going to seek him. They don't even care if he's there. It's religious motions. What's the religious repentance? It's, it's you turn because you got caught. It's, it's saying sorry only because you've been exposed. Your, your heart hasn't changed, but your actions have been exposed. So, so you think, man, if I just say sorry here, then, then they'll, they'll turn off the bright light on my heart. They won't dig any deeper. And we turn and we're caught, not, not because we hate the sin. We just hate being caught. That's religious repentance. There, there's a, a self-focusedness to religious repentance, where we, have a, we repent, but it's all about ourselves, and, and we repent because we live in self-pity. Oh, woe is me. Look how awful I am. Look how brutal I am. I can't believe I did this. What will people think of me when they find out about this? It's self-pity. It's about self. It's not about the glory of God. It's religious repentance. Or there's a superficial turning where we just want it done quick. Hey, I said I was sorry. Can we drop it? Right? Superficial. And, and then we, we wrap our own robe of righteousness around ourselves saying, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. And, and we hope that no one digs deeper than that. And what it's doing, that superficial, I'm sorry, let's keep going. It's mowing over the weeds, but not actually digging them out by the roots. It's a... It's avoiding looking at what was it that drove that sin and eventually it becomes behavior modification. If I just do this, I'll stop doing this action. Meanwhile, our heart is still craving what drove us to the sin in the first place. Instead of just doing that, we need to let the word of God open up our hearts and lay our hearts bare. Now here's the thing about repentance. I mean, I've, I've noticed this that over the years that, that what often happens is we either err on the side of, I want to make sure that people understand that God is holy, so let's not talk about grace too much because we don't want people to just walk away and just keep sinning. So, so let's just pound the holiness thing and not talk much about grace. Or there's the opposite. Let's talk so much about forgiveness and grace and love and, and you're just broken and Jesus loves you anyway because we don't want people to, to think that, it, that God is wrathful or that we don't want them to get caught up in legalism. And we, we, we create this weird tension that the Bible never creates. In fact, it was John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He says it this way. He says, it's not about one or the other. It's not grace or, 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 or God's law over us. He says this, deeper knowledge of sin leads to richer rejoicing in grace. He's saying when you actually see the picture laid out before you of where you actually stand in yourself compared to Christ, 
It doesn't lead you to being wore out, beat down. It leads you to say, man, what a glorious God I serve. Look at his relentless pursuit of me and grace because I don't stand there. He sees me standing here, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So as we wrap this up this morning, then what does a true life of repentance look like? The third point this morning is this, a life of true repentance. To see us for who we really are outside of Christ, what's it look like to turn and pursue Christ? If the, the answer to wholeness, the answer to healing is true repentance, what does that mean? It means I see my sin clearly, I see God's grace clearly, and, and it leads me to worship him and him alone. So when we read through Hosea and you hear about all this wrath of God being poured out on a sinful people, <coughs> the warnings of God here is not a heavy-handed God. This is not evidence of, a, of an angry, unjust God. I mean, think of it this way. If you've ever parked in a place where you weren't supposed to park or maybe you let the meter run down and you come out to your car and there's the little ticket on the windshield I mean, you can be mad at the person who wrote the ticket, but, but right away, what do, you, what do you, you, you know it's not the parking cop's fault, it's my fault, this was me. Okay, now, now imagine you're in the store, you've parked on the street, and, and, and your meter is run out or running out, and you're, you're in the store, you don't know, but now the parking attendant, the, the parking cop, comes into the store to find you. And they're walking through the store going, hear me, Right? You are parked illegally. I've come to warn you, if you let this meter run out, you will have to face judgment and I don't want you to get a ticket. So I've come to warn you to move your car or put money in the machine. Is that an angry parking cop? No, it's an act of mercy that warning is. God in his mercy warning us Look at chapter five, verse 11. It says, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. Verse 12, but I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. God's saying, I'm bringing judgment. And he says, I'm like dry rot. I'm like a moth. He says, I'm going after their foundations the things they're building their life on that, that does not support, that does not bring life and hope. God says, I'm going after that. And I'm telling you, man, that hurts. Verse 14, for I'll, I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I mean, this is hard. Conviction hurts. Being called Gomer doesn't feel great. But listen, judgment hurts more than conviction. Verse 15, God goes on. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. If you stay in your sin, if you don't make that move, if you don't actually change, repent, turn from what you're pursuing to pursue Christ, not moving forward in repentance means you're staying and growing deeper into the rot and the brokenness. Here's the dangerous place you end up. You end up to a place where your heart grows colder, your heart grows further away, your heart grows harder, and you become what I've heard this before, you become sermon-proof. You can hear somebody preach, you can read God's word, you can listen to worship, 
and you're no longer moved by conviction. The Spirit's quenched. I mean, Israel thought they didn't need to repent. Israel pushed back against, against God as God pursued them. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. As God talked about Israel, he says, you're like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? He said, you're, you're pushing against my relentless pursuit. God's saying, lay down like a lamb. That's who you are. And God in his mercy is exposing their heart, saying, listen, you're acting stubborn like a heifer, but that's not who you are. I've created you and called you my own. You're a lamb. So what's our hope? Look at chapter six, first three verses, it says this, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us now, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I mean, this is, this is a description of the glorious gospel. This is, this is what brings us healing. And how do we respond to this? The evidence that this has taken root in our hearts, the evidence that we have actually heard it and listened to the good news of the gospel will be lives of ongoing repentance, lives of gratitude, lives of surrender, lives of love and worship and obedience. So how do we get there? What does true repentance look like? Real quickly, here's what true repentance is. Number one, acknowledge the sin. Acknowledge the sin. Now, here's the thing about acknowledging sin in a church like ours. We've got a pretty gospel-driven, grace-soaked, it's okay to not be okay here. And so we talk about acknowledge the sin. I don't mean corporately, because I think right now, if I were to say, hey, how many here are sinners? Everyone's hands go up. Yeah, totally. I know it. I'm a sinner, but if instead I said, hey, we're gonna take the next three hours and one by one, we'll bring the mic down and everyone stand up and, and Dan, would you explain your sin to us all in detail? Now let's go on, Laura, could you as well and just work your way down the line? Very few, I'm not doing that. I'm okay corporately saying we're sinners, but to stand up and say, I am a sinner. That's harder. It's difficult. But the first way we, we move in true repentance is acknowledge the sin, our sin, personally, not, not group sin, but here's where I've sinned. You, you begin to dig deeply and, and see what your sin is. Lord, this is what I've loved. Yeah, it came out as anger, but God, this is what I've loved that's driven that. And you're looking beneath the sin. God, this is where I'm Gomer. I've, I've whored after this because, because I wanted what it provided. I've been hiding from you instead of hiding in you and, and we reveal the sin. So here's the first step in, in honest, true repentance. Be honest about your sin. Uncover the behavior. Look down to the motivation and, and with that sin, you're bringing that out to lay it bare before the Lord. He sees it all anyway. It's like a fig leaf trying to hide it. Acknowledge the sin. Here's the second thing we do. We renounce the sin. I mean, God in his grace will step in and say, I'm gonna remove that sinful idol from your heart, that, that thing you run to that he's graciously been revealing. 
I mean, what is it for you? Is it, is it power? Is it control? Is it approval? Is it comfort? What's the thing that you run to? How, how does it show itself? What sins are revealed with that heart struggle you've got? Maybe it's sexual temptation. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's, it's workaholism. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's substance abuse. And it, it's so hard as God begins to press in and say, drop the idol. And listen, it will feel like hell as that idol is being released, as, as God's saying, I'm going to rot that thing out from the inside. It's not an easy process. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why is he saying that? He's saying, listen, it will be painful to release the sin. Why? Because it feels like it's a part of you. It's, it's why we run and hide. It's why we blame. It's why we excuse. It's why we defend. Because to lose the sin, the idol, the thing we're going after, it's losing a part of who we are. Because true repentance, it's not just renouncing the behavior, it's renouncing the actual attitude beneath it. It's renouncing my dependence on it. I love that. That's why I go to it. And Lord, I don't want to. So what is it in your heart that you have this, this sinful dependence on it? And the world's telling you, you need that. Your sinful heart's saying, grab a hold of this. The call to turn away from that, it will hurt. It will involve pain. But you're going to the one, what's it say? The one who binds you up. The one who cuts deep to cut away the sin is the same one who binds up your heart. He's the one who heals you. So we acknowledge the sin, we renounce the sin. And here's the thing, growing up in church, that's about as far as I understood repentance. That's kind of what I was told. Hey, acknowledge your sin, turn away from your sin. That's repentance. And we miss the third most important piece. Not only do we acknowledge it and turn away from it, but what do we turn to? We turn and seek the Lord. Now, I can't unpack this in its totality this morning. If you, if you like to read books, here's a great book. Write this one down, Look and Live by a guy named Matt Papa. Look and live. He unpacks what it is to go from turning from sin to seeing Christ. To see that we've been given a new heart with new affections. That, that the gospel's not just a comfort for me, but it, it's, it's radically changed you. It's, it's made you so different. It's, it's so countercultural that nothing in this world will draw my heart. Then I'll forsake it all to have what Christ has for me, which is Himself. In fact, in his book, Look and Live, Matt Papa says it this way, we worship our way into sin. We need to worship our way out of sin. It's my heart in worship pursuing after sin. So what do I do? I need to find a greater affection. I need to find something with greater weight, greater glory. And so I turn and pursue, pursue Christ. In fact, look at verse six. This is what God says. For I desire, <coughs> chapter six, verse six, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. Don't, don't, don't worry about the religious piece of this. It's your heart in worship. Yes, make a change, but make a change to pursue God and his glory. Seeing the Lord, seeing his promises, seeing the gospel. Seeing the contrast in who you are apart from Christ and who you are declared in Christ. In fact, look at the contrast even here in chapter 6. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. He says, you're like a mist. You're like, I love you, and you're gone. 
I'm committed. Nowhere, nowhere there anymore. But look at the contrast. He says, that's who you are. But look at verse three. He says, he's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. He goes, yeah, you're unfaithful, but I'm not. We turn and we see God's faithfulness, the grace of God assured to us like, like showers of rain. So it's not try harder, do more. It's rejoicing in, it's embracing, it's understanding, it's living under the truth of the gospel saying, my life is going to pursue that. Recognize that all my sin, all the bitterness, the anger, the lying, the lust, the fear, the anxiety, it's me trying to rescue myself. So the real rescue happens as I move my heart onto something greater onto something weightier, onto something more beautiful. So not just take away the sin, but put your hope in something greater. And you worship God and you thank God for how he rescued you in Christ. You, you rehearse the gospel that, that, yeah, I'm more sinful than I'd ever admit to you, but man, I'm more loved in the gospel than I could ever imagine. You rehearse that, you rejoice in that. You allow that truth to have a greater weight and a greater beauty and your heart rests and you say, God's relentless grace for Gomer is God's relentless grace for me. That's the way we fight sin. And, and listen, listen, it's day by day. It's ongoing. Why day by day? Because my heart, like Gomer, pursues sin every day. Satan tempts me every day. I wander every day. I'm wooed by other things every day. And so what do we do? We repent every day. Satan tempts us every day. Satan accuses us every day. Satan will rub our face in our sin. Say, you're a sinner. There's no way God loves you. You're too far gone. And he wants to take, listen, he wants to take the focus and the glory away from God and have you live in self-pity. So day by day, we repent. We acknowledge, we turn from our sin, renounce it, and see Christ and worship him. It's a turning, but it turns into action. So our, our response when Satan attacks us is it's not, it's not to deny the reality of our sin. If we deny our sin, Satan wins. It's, it's not to wallow in our sin either. Oh, what a wretch, I'm just nothing. There's no way God could ever love me. Satan wins there as well. The right response is yes, I'm a sinner. I'm a worse sinner than you even know, Satan. But my father sees me as pure and whole as a spotless bride because he's dressed me in the righteousness of his son. So telling the devil that, that I'm good, that just invites more attack. Telling the devil that I'm all evil, that invites more attack. But telling the devil, listen, Jesus is righteousness and I'm in him. That makes the devil flee. When we diminish our sin, we rest in ourselves. When we, when we despair in our sin, we diminish God's grace. Our calling is this, as the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, our calling is that we own our sin. We plumb down into the depths of it. Why? Because then we know God's grace is greater. We have deep sorrow and repentance followed by a deep confidence in his grace and it leads us to an immovable joy. Yes, it's, it's hard. There's, there's bitterness in repentance, but there's a greater ultimate. And, and what we go after instead of God, the more precious, the more life-changing, the more amazing that God's grace appears to us, 
The more we see his relentless grace, the more we pursue in relentless repentance. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. I'm gonna have you stand with me right now. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me? We're gonna respond this morning. If we worship our way into sin, we worship our way out of sin, we're gonna respond in worship. But not just singing. As you sing this song, would you picture yourself in a very real way? What does it look like to turn from? What am I this morning saying, God, this is the sin? This is my motive. This is what I go after. This is where I'm Gomer. This morning, you, you, you bring that to the Lord specifically. God, this is it. And God, I renounce that. I want to turn from that. My hope is not found there. And you turn and worship. You turn and worship the King of Kings. See, the verse in chapter 6 says that after two days, we, we'd be healed. After three days, we raised up. And, and it points us to where our hope is, that Jesus Christ himself, wounded for our transgressions, nailed to the cross because of our sins, on the third day, raised again to conquer sin and death and Satan and declare over us, you are now righteous. And we turn to that and we worship. Let me pray before we sing. Lord God, I thank you that you came to rescue I thank you that you called out, hear me. Father, I pray that even this morning we'd be listening. And that that listening that would, would be a heart change and that heart change would result in, in action that we would turn, that we would repent. And God, not just this morning, not just right now, but God, day by day, we'd be renewed. Day by day, seeing our sin, turning away from it and worshiping you. And that we would stand in that truth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.